Every Sunday that I've been here, we've been going through the book of Revelation. So this has taken us over the course of maybe two years, year and a half to two years, and we're in Revelation chapter 20 this morning, an amazing chapter, uh, getting toward the end of the book, and we are at the end of chapter 20. So we left off at verse 10 um, last Sunday, and we're going to look at these closing verses of chapter 20, 11 through 15. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn there, Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to begin in verse 11 and read through the end of the chapter. And if you can this morning, please stand while we read the Word of God together. So John writes in verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. We talked about this last Sunday. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You may be seated. Obviously not the type of passage that uh, you would put out on some kind of a display board down by the street and hope to get a crowd. So uh, talking about the second death, talking about the reality of hell, is not a popular topic today. Unfortunately, not only in our greater culture, our American culture, but unfortunately, even in the church today. We don't hear much about it, and yet here it is in the context of Revelation chapter 20 as we wind down the chronological order of the things that are going to happen. And this is a very, very uh, sobering passage to look at together. And I believe greatly that we need the Lord's help. So let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to understand your word that you would take your word and, and allow it to pierce us on the inside. That your living word would do its job, Lord. We know that it is active and, and powerful and can cut deeper than anything else. And I just pray, Lord, that you would use it this morning to teach us, to clarify things for us, to energize us, to get us excited, to convict us, to reassure us, even encourage us. So be our teacher this morning, we pray in that precious name of the Lamb who was slain but is standing in heaven, the Lamb who sits on the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ, together. Amen. 
Alarms, warning bells, sirens, flashing red lights, we hear them a lot. We see them a great deal, but increasingly, we take them less and less seriously. For instance, a car alarm goes off in the Home Depot parking lot and we're more annoyed than concerned. An ambulance wails by us on I-205 and we barely notice it above our Spotify playlist. A warehouse control monitor at your workplace starts flashing bright red lights all over the place. And a coworker dismisses it with a yawn. Yeah, that happens all the time. A loud, pulsating alarm goes off as a customer, maybe even you, leaves Freddy's. And three employees just wave you or him off. Well, what's happening here? We might call it warning fatigue. Too many alarms, too often, so many of which, which turn out to be false. As one person put it, well, don't be alarmed, it's just another alarm. And sadly to say, with that in mind, all of this no-big-deal conditioning likely makes our enemy very happy because there is one alarm completely different from all others that he would like us to minimize, that he would like us to downplay, to shrug off, even better, to completely and entirely ignore. And that's God's warning siren that we see here at the end of Revelation chapter 20. God's warning siren, his flashing red light that say to us clearly, this is what it looks like when it's too late. This is what it looks like when it's too late. This is what it looks like at the end of the line. This is scriptural reality. This is the real thing. This is history in the future. This is what it looks like when there are no more second chances. This is what it looks like in final and irrevocable judgment when it takes place. Settled, fixed, certain, once and for all. Wow. These are tough words, aren't they? Even as we just read them together and you looked in your Bible or listened to me read them just a few moments ago, you're probably cringing a little bit. There's a little bit of that, ooh, man, that's tough stuff. Bible teacher John MacArthur has said this about verses 11 and 15 in Revelation 20. This is one of the most serious, sobering, and tragic passages in the entire Bible. The Apostle Peter, earlier in the New Testament, asked point blank in his first letter, 4th chapter, 17th verse, asked this question, what will be the outcome, what will be the end, or what will be the terrible fate, as the NLT translates it, for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And I thought it was interesting that he uses the word obey. Because we're not talking about what you see on the outside. We're not talking about those who identify themselves as Christians or churchgoers or religious people. It's not exterior. It's not social media oriented. 
This is the real thing. And so he uses the word obey. Those who obey the gospel of God, that there's actually motion, there's action. Something happens. A life is transformed. Well, I believe Revelation 20, the verses that we've just looked at together, the end of the chapter, clearly answers that question in 1 Peter chapter 4. God's blaring alarm comes in the form of, here's our answer, the form of a throne. Throne has been a a dominant word, a, a dominant picture, a dominant visual throughout the course of these 19 chapters in Revelation. In fact, that word throne in the Greek has been used 37 times before we get to this usage at the end of chapter 20. But there's a distinction here. This throne is very, very different. This throne is distinct from all the other 37 thrones that we've looked at thus far in Revelation. This throne is described in verse 11 as a great throne. This throne is described as a white throne. So I want you to try to get that picture in your head as you imagine the scene, this this real scene that's going to take place in the future after the millennial period. The throne is large, very large, unusually large, unusually majestic. Probably the most massive throne that we could ever conceive, and that throne is white consistently using that imagery that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, communicating to us that that throne is also not only gigantic and large and imposing and bigger and more awesome than anything that we've seen, but also pure and holy and righteous. Why? I believe we're setting up a contrast here because who is the audience before that throne? It's a contrast with those this time who are standing before it. Those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, those through, who out, throughout history have rejected him. Those who now stand before him with no more second chances outside the time of grace and mercy of God. And who sits on this throne? Jesus Christ himself, I believe, is the one who sits on the throne. We only have the pronoun translated in most of your Bibles as him with a capital H. But we read clearly in the scriptures that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. We read that in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 27. We also read... In the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 42, these words, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. We read in Romans chapter 2, written by the Apostle Paul in verse 16, these words, on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through whom Jesus Christ, Paul tells us. Where is this throne? This is kind of interesting. 
isn't it? What does verse 11 tells us? Does it give us a location? All we read are these awesome words from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Well, what does this tell us? We don't really know where it's located. It resides in some unique and special spot in the universe or perhaps even outside our existing universe. We don't know where it is. Heaven and earth have fled away from it. Isn't that an incredible picture? Also, again, emphasizing the holiness and, and perfection of the one who sits on that throne. Why do you think that factor is included? I think, again, we're just getting that, that picture of contrast because here in this place, wherever it is, that's totally unique, where there's never been anything there before, here, the one standing before the throne cannot hide anywhere. Where would you go? Outside of the universe, we can't even conceive where that would be. Out in space somewhere, where could you go to hide? Where could you go to run? How could you then rely on, on anything outside yourself, any kind of material help or, or defense? The picture we get here in verse 11 is it's, in, it's entirely that group of people, those who don't know Christ and Christ himself. That's it. Them and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a frightening scene for those who have continued to put God off or for those who have continued to really in their hearts reject the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus who, who may have played spiritual games their, their entire life, played church games that made it look as though they were followers of Christ but never really surrendered their hearts to him. What a tragedy. What a scary and frightening scene in verse 11 alone. While our enemy, we well know, would just love to discredit this whole scene in verse 11. I want us to look at some very, very critical and important facts this morning. About this judgment. About this great white throne judgment. About this judgment that has to do with the second death for those whom there is no longer the outreach of grace. And the first one is this, because a lot of things may come into our minds, whoa, that is, man, what happened to love? What happened to inclusive? What happened to all of this stuff, you know, that we hear our world just pours out every day, all day long. But this is God's reality. So what is the Bible telling us? Well, here's three crucial facts. The first one is this. This judgment, first of all, before we jump to any conclusions, is fair, capital F. This judgment, firstly, is fair. And the emphasis here is on who we face or who they face. So we go back to verse 11, we go back to that scene that we've been concentrating on for the last few minutes. What do you see missing here? This is not the popular cartoonish image of St. Peter standing at the pearly gates, is it? This is not a, a, another idea that is so popular of a receptionist-like angel sitting on a cloud checking to see if you have a reservation. What do we see in verse 11? 
we see a throne and we see the one who we've been told in chapter 19 is the conquering king of kings, our warrior, lord of lords, holy, perfect, pure. So what does this tell us about fairness? Could there be anyone more fair than the Lord Jesus Christ? Could his motives be tainted? Could evidence against you be, be wrong, be misunderstood, be incomplete? Could he have some unfair bias against you? I just don't like you. It's a, it's a personality conflict between you and Jesus. Or you think, he doesn't understand me. I meant well. My heart was in it. I was going to, he just doesn't get it. Can Jesus Christ ever just not get it? The one who knows you better than you know yourself. The one who knows you inside, complete, pure and holy and perfect. No tainting, no misunderstanding. In fact, he says in the Gospel of John, so John would have been very familiar with these words. In John chapter 2, Jesus says that he knows what is in a man. He knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We do very well at putting up a front, don't we? What would you ever want if there were a possibility of a machine that was marketed that could actually broadcast the thoughts and intentions of your heart? Would you ever want something like that to actually be marketable? He knows it all. In fact, he had told us earlier in the book of Revelation, addressing seven different times, seven different churches, beginning with these words in his assessment. So each one of these churches, you remember from Revelation chapter 2 and 3, every one of these churches had something that they projected to the world. The church at Ephesus in chapter 2 was really good, right? It looked like the happening church. Everything was going on there. This was the busy, successful church probably with the whole roster of ministries, busy, busy, busy. But then Jesus Christ says, you know, got all that stuff going on. I see all that stuff. I know all that stuff. I know all that churchy stuff. But I know this. And he says that seven different times to seven different churches. I know this about you. Knowing in the original Greek language, meaning deeper than, of course, knowing what your ministries are, knowing what your website lists is all the different things that you have to offer a family if they come to your church. The knowing here is an intimate knowledge, a thorough knowledge beyond the exterior. In fact, that word know can also mean complete. So Jesus is in essence saying to these churches and to these individuals and to all of us and to every person who has ever lived, I know you completely. I know you completely. Therefore, this judgment, firstly, is fair. Number two, this judgment is final. This judgment is final. This is, kind of hits us. 
but that picture should be clear in Revelation 20. The emphasis here, the first emphasis on, is on who we would face. The emphasis here is on what we or they will face. And three aspects stand out to me of this, that this judgment is final. Number one, there will be no exceptions. There will be no exceptions. We read in verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne. The great and the small. What does that mean? That's everybody. That's what that little phrase means when scripture uses that phrase and the emphasis there is nobody's left out. And there are no earthly exterior distractions. All of those things or distinctions, they will mean absolutely nothing. In other words, standing before that great white throne, no matter what your background, no matter what you accomplished on earth, no matter who you are, what your pedigree is, who your family is, what your education is, how much money you made, you will have nothing to boast about. There will be nothing that you could cite that would set you apart from everybody else. There is no impressive resume or reputation to cling to. The great white throne presents a, a leveling. There will be no exceptions. I told you about a month ago how much I like to read, and I read just about everything, if it's, if it's good and clean and... And uh, a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of exciting stories about different tragedies that have happened. So things like the Titanic, uh, uh, different uh, natural disasters that happen. There's a, there's a great one called Isaac Storm that has to do with the uh, uh, hurricane that took place in Galveston in September of 1900. 6,000 plus people died in that hurricane. I picked up a book a couple of years ago. This is a Pacific Northwestern-oriented story up in Washington. It's called The White Cascade, the Great Northern Railway Disaster and America's Deadliest Avalanche. And so kind of a train got stuck up in the mountains, had all kinds of different people from, from different backgrounds on it, and they thought they were okay, they were ready to escape and, and get to safety, and then at that point an avalanche hit them. And the train went over the edge. 96 people died in that particular accident. But it's interesting to read about these, how people survived and, and different things that they were able to do and the resourcefulness that, that uh, men and women and even children can have through natural disasters like this. How many people turn to God even through natural disasters? But the interesting thing that I've seen consistently through all these disasters is a leveling. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You're involved in an avalanche. What's your money going to do? It doesn't matter how great your clothes are or your social standing. What's that going to matter when you're poking your head out of snow? Right? Or you're in the middle of a hurricane. I mean, it takes everybody, the wealthy, the poor, the visitors, everybody in between, the messed up people, the people who've got their lives together. It puts them all on level ground. And that's the scene that we get here. There will be no exceptions. Number two, there will be no extensions. There will be no extensions. We go back to the beginning of 
Revelation and we read in the third verse in the first chapter, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. That's a nice reminder. And heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. The time is near. We read the same thing in the book of Acts in the very beginning before Jesus leaves the earth, before he ascends into heaven. The issue of timing. God has set his time. God has his perfect time. There will be no extensions. All of this has been designated before Genesis 1-1 in the mind and perfect plan and purpose of God. What's going to happen is going to happen on God's timetable. So in this picture in, in verse 11 and through the end of Revelation chapter 20, there will be no last minute stays. There will be no reconsiderations. There will be no way to, can I buy some time somehow? How can I put this thing off? Can you just give me, uh, Jesus, give me another week? You know, let me think through this thing. Just give me a little more time. There will be no extensions. Thirdly, there will be no excuses. There will be no excuses. We read verse 12 together. Verse 13 says, adds to that, and the sea will give up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And so we have a phrase repeated in both, both verse 12 and 13. Do you see it? According to their deeds. How are they judged at the great white throne judgment? According to their deeds. The book tells all. The books that are opened and then the book of life. Every last irrefutable detail of one's life, all there complete, plain to see. Now, remember this, the great white throne judgment, this is a judgment. This is not a trial. This is not a courtroom. There's no case being brought here. There's no jury, defender, appeal. The proof is there. God's law has been violated. God's son has been rejected. Now, for you and I, the, the deeds, what we do in this life, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a whole different thing. That's a whole different judgment. But understand, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, your plea is going to be the shed blood of Jesus. The rest are just rewards and things like that. Well done, good and faithful servant. But the basis of our defense is Jesus Christ himself, and he knows that because if you know Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's not the scene here. The scene here is they have no plea. They have no defense. All they have is evidence from the Lord Jesus Christ himself of every deed they've ever done, that they have been in violation of God's law. Because if you're not under the blood of Jesus, you're under the condemnation of God's law. You understand that, yes? yes. A lot of churches are seeming to get this confused more and more today. 
If you don't know Christ, you are under the condemnation of the law. The law has condemned you. And what did James tell us? If you're guilty of even one thing, you're guilty of all of it. Right? So when you make your plea and say, well, I'm a pretty good person, though. I've got a pretty good reputation. I'm a good family man. I'm a good husband. I'm honest. I work hard. I've got a great work ethic. I've lived a pretty good life. Never been in prison. Never done drugs. I'm a pretty upstanding person. So what? Great white throne judgment to you is going to say, so what? This is your life. Every single, can you imagine? Every single thing you've ever done, every bad thought that you've ever had, every time you've lost your temper, everything, but I'm a good person, but you lost your temper. That condemns you. You say, that's not fair. God's grace has been extended to you thousands and thousands and thousands of times. That's not fair. God says, I have this standard, and that standard can only be met through my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who is perfect and holy and capable of keeping the law perfectly. Never had a bad thought. Do you know Jesus Christ was sinless? They've done studies in the last, over the course of the last 10 years, and particularly younger people have no concept of the doctrine of Jesus Christ being sinless. That's tragic. Because if we don't know that, how do we understand everything else? And then that's when it gets confusing for us because we say, wait a minute, this isn't fair. The great white throne judgment, what's that based upon? Uh, my deeds, well, why aren't Christians then condemned for their deeds and so on and so forth? And we get very confused and the enemy is going, yeah. Just keep them out of the Bible. Yes. That's what I want. Stop talking about hell. Ooh, hell is horrible. It's terrible. It's unwoke. It's nasty. And he's just going, yeah. Even though where's he going to end up? That's why he hates it so much. But if he's going, why not take a few with him? Can you imagine the tragedy of that day, the sadness of that day? Somebody standing before the great white throne judgment, and the books are opened, and their name is not in the book of life. And they're just like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, but I, I well, well, come on, give me a chance, reconsider it. All they hear is silence. But it wasn't always silence. Here's the word of God right here. We have the truth. John 14, 6. Jesus Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's the truth. You've heard it, right? We need to be born again. There's only one way into the kingdom of God, and that's to be born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by his grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Not by works, not by anything that we could do, but by his grace through faith. That's the truth. You know the truth. This judgment, lastly, is forever. This is hard. 
this judgment is forever. Here the emphasis is on where that punishment is faced. Look at verses 14 and 15. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Look back at verse 10 as a reference that gives us a little more of the context of what's happening here. And the devil who deceived them, as I mentioned a moment ago, is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. Now look at the last phrase. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Tormented is a horrible word. In the original Greek language, it has the idea of excruciating mental and physical suffering. And that excruciating mental and physical suffering goes on forever. Hell is not a state of mind, folks. Hell is not annihilation, which has been taught is creeping back into the church again, where annihilation means that hell is just, boop, we're gone. Don't we die, just boop, we're no more. Scripture doesn't teach that. Hell is not some alternate world uh, without religion. Scripture tells us plain and simple, and there's no way around it. I'm not making this up. This isn't my teaching. This isn't something we do every Sunday and I pound the pulpit and say, fire and brimstone. This is in the context of Revelation. It's, it's after the millennium. It's the final judgment. It's a real thing. I've told this story many times, but maybe some of you haven't heard it. It left such an impact on me. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I used to get together with a like-minded group of party guys. And one thing that we did once a week was had a poker game in one of the guys' garages, and lots of beer would flow, and, and we just had a great old time. I'll never forget one of those Friday nights, got off work, regular scene, I was kind of getting tired of it, actually. But regular scene, same guys, sitting in the friend's garage, beard already been flowing. Guys were laughing. And somehow, some way, this is what I can't remember, the subject of hell came up. Kind of a weird thing, come up in a context like that. But it came up. And somebody made a few comments about it, and one of the guys, kind of the, kind of the leader of the poker game, just said, hey, guys, guys, come on. He goes, what are you worried about? Hell will be pretty cool because we're all going to be down there and we're all going to be partying together. Clang, beer bottles, yeah, you know. These guys are laughing, busting up, except me. I remember that had a profound impact on me because on the inside, I was crying. There's no way I was going to let a tear out in front of those guys. But I panicked. Maybe it was a panic attack. I just had to get out of there. 
Now, I'd like to tell you that I got out of there and I searched and I found a reliable Bible teacher or church and I got saved the next day. But that wouldn't be the truth. All I knew was that I needed to get out of there and all I knew was that every one of those guys and anybody that believed just like them was wrong. And about a year later, I met my wife, who's not here this morning, who was not following the Lord, but knew the truth, knew the word, had been raised in a Christian home. And she began to speak to that emptiness in my heart and gave me this very Bible that I still use today, almost over 40 years ago. Left it in the back seat of my car. And I began to read that the Bible indeed addressed the topic of hell. In fact, Jesus Christ talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. But more than that, what I began to read was there's an antidote. More than that, I began to read that there is hope, that there is an answer, that there is a way. And that way was the Lord Jesus Christ. And I began to read through the Gospel of John. I began to read through Matthew. I began to read through the book of Ephesians. And I couldn't stop until God took away every plank that I was standing on for my false security one by one and began to show me if you place your faith in my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he did on the cross, he did that for you. I didn't know that. I grew up in religion, but I didn't know that. You don't need to worry about hell. What a relief. God is sounding his alarm. When you look at this in Revelation 20, so a lot of you have Bibles in front of you, but you were here as we read it together. You know what it says. Why would God put this in here? It's, this letter is written for the church, right? We know that from Revelation 2 and 3, that this was written to the churches. I think there's a couple of reasons. I think it's God's warning bell again, to even to the church, to say, there may be somebody in the church who is comfortable going to church, comfortable being around other believers, because it's what I've always done. It's my family tradition. I like being there. But where are you going to stand in the judgment? Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? It's God in his grace and mercy giving us a, a snapshot, a, a slide look at the future. This is what the final picture looks like. That's the alarm. What a great God we have. This is the real thing. When you go to the grocery store, when you go to Home Depot, when, when you're driving on the freeway, when you go to work, a lot of those people that walk beside you 
a lot of those people that you say, hi, how's your day going? Thank you. Yeah, I'd like a receipt. Are right now in this picture. That ought to sober us up. So I would encourage you today, January 22nd, 2023, do something about it. God, by his amazing grace that's so undeserved, has given us a picture of the future. And he's giving you a choice if you're going to be in that picture or not. Because if you know Christ, you're not in this picture. You see that? We're not there. Remember, we were, we, we were reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we were sitting on thrones, and we're looking forward to the new heaven and new earth. But if you don't know that for sure, take advantage of it today. We don't know how many days we have. We just don't know. But God is gracious. If the Lord lays that on your heart and you're convicted that today is the day I need to get serious about Jesus Christ, tell me about it later, will you? Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the gospel that saves us. We thank you for the shed blood of Jesus that made it possible for us to come into the kingdom of God. All we have to say is, I believe. I trust in what he did, and my sins are forgiven once and for all. And Lord God, I pray if there's anybody in this room who has any doubts whatsoever, Lord God, that today would be the day that your spirit would bring conviction and I pray, too, for the rest of us, Lord, that we would realize that there's a whole lot of people headed for hell right now, people that we see every day, that we work with, that, that live next door to us. And, Lord God, I pray that you would renew our compassion for them, that we would see them differently, and that your Holy Spirit would give us the ability to reach out in any way that we can. We pray these things together in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.